today's read, A Moment of Silence, Midnight Three by Sister Soldier, Chapter 16, Rackers Island, The Kids Complex, A Stampede, then bodies on top of bodies, fists flinging without precision, feet kicking, poles cracking, heads open, shank, knives, piercing flesh randomly. The rest of us, still standing, are moving around the perimeter of the pileup. There is nowhere else to go. We are all locked in, and we were leery of standing still, so we pace. Screaming from the top tiers, the cheering noise and commands being called out, turn this into an echo chamber. Down below where I am, there are grunts and cries. Get the fuck off of me. Move. I can't breathe. I'ma fuck you up. I'm trying to figure out the formula. I just got here. We're all in our arrested street clothes. Couldn't tell who was down with who. A grown-up kid dragged a chair behind him, lifted it up, and prepared to swing it down on the pileup. I snatched it from the midair and tossed it across the floor where no one was standing. It hit the wall and turned over. Now the kid was shouting out, Hook! Some of them boys buried in the pile up tried to lift themselves up from the pile. Another man shouted, The bridge! A quarter of the bodies raised up, still fighting and fists still flinging in faces, and the pile shifted. But then they dived back onto the floor, scuffling for a shank that was just lying there in the open. One kid finally got a hold of it, but then his man pulled it away from him, slicing open both of his palms, the blood spilling everywhere. The chest of the kid left holding the shank was heaving. He pumped himself up and made a dash towards another kid who he caught sight of and pushed the shank through him. It wasn't enough. He pulled it, twisting it back and forth as he yanked it out from the kid's torso. The guy's body writhing and he was screaming at the top of his lungs. His boys came to help him too late. One took off his t-shirt and attempted to wrap it around the stabbed guy's stomach. The white tee was soaked red and the cut kid fell on the pile. Someone beneath him pushed him hard and he rolled off to the side and lay there looking lifeless. But the one holding the shank on ready was still on the move. He was the one to watch, so I watched him. His arm raised in the air. He was setting up to slash down and the bodies below his shank flipped and scrambled to get out the way of the blade. He was searching out his target. The Ville, one of the kids that was on the bottom of the pile shouted as he leapfrogged up to his feet with a pair of Air Force Ones in his hands, even though he had Jordans on his feet. I got it, he yelled victory, but didn't see the knife heading for his back. I did. I kicked the kid coming for him with full force. He flew over the pile before landing on the floor and dropped the shank. Another kid spit a razor at me. I leaned to the side and it lodged in some next man's neck. I snatched the kid from the ville whose face I recognized and two more from the heap. Good looking, one of them said, and his eyes checked me like he was taking a snapshot. Rasta up, 
one Jamaican kid shouted, and the Rastas rushed the pileup and started kicking and smashing the others with their feet like they were smashing grapes or killing roaches or kicking soccer balls. The dropped shank hadn't surfaced yet, but the pile kept moving and shifting like footballers trying to pile up on a loose ball. I was studying faces, weighing loyalties and allegiances, watching fingers, razored up tongues and facial gestures, even the ones from the field. I was checking who was left wearing shoes, who was without shoes, and what kind of kicks those wearing kicks were wearing. I just needed to distinguish the lions from the tigers, the wolves from the hyenas, the hippos from the elephants, and the rats from the snakes, and I needed to do it quick. It wasn't easy during a stampede or a riot, or where the fighting was random, and ten or more guys who weren't ganged or burrowed up were just stray junkyard dogs in the mix. I saw the shank put my foot on it and kicked it toward the wall with the pile pushing toward me. I was tackled and fought back but got buried beneath the weight of bodies. Weight shift. Someone must have got hold of the shank and now he's the target. I was pulling up from the bottom. Riot geared up and 18 minutes too late the special corrections officer squad opened the gate and came rushing in. While the two COs who had locked themselves in the booth and had been watching from the first fist flung, laughed. Even though the riot geared up gorillas were charging, the threats were still being called out between the men fighting. Payback is a bitch. They ain't nowhere to hide. Muerte a las mariconcitas. We run this motherfucker. One by one, the riot squad took down all who didn't voluntarily lay down. Some got cracked with shields, hemmed in with knees buried in their chest and pinning them down. Some CO gorillas ganged up and threw their weight against a prisoner who they went at with a vengeance like there had been bad blood between them. I got the baton driven into my back and was pinned to the wall. Then I was cuffed, dragged down, and got a floor view of all of us who had been subdued. Along with the others who were still standing, we on the floor all began coughing and gagging. Someone had released a chemical in a room that had no open windows and no one had the energy, the clear vision, or the breath to fight or resist any further. Good, I thought to myself. Welcome to hell, someone shouted through the slot on a closed and locked cell door. The CO unlocked the cell where we stood. He unchained and uncuffed my feet and pushed me inside, slamming the cell door shut and locking it. Hands, he yelled through the slot. I pushed my hands through. He uncuffed me after he was sure he was safe on the other side of the locked cell door. I pulled my hands back, massaged each wrist and exhaled. I was in the box, the bing, segregation, isolation, 23-hour daily lockdown, doing 90 days. It was the most dreaded, most dangerous place for the most dreaded and dangerous inmates. Only lawyer visits, no one else, no phone calls, 
no cellmate, no day room, no yard, three minutes for a supervised shower, 57 minutes to go to the law library or move around in a fake tiny indoor yard alone. Everyone on the island called it hell or the black hole. It was exactly where I wanted to be. Welcome to hell. I heard it twice more. I just heard it shouted out again. Business must be good, I thought to myself. They're bringing in another prisoner and pushing him into another box. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I also heard it before I got up here on the bus ride from the tombs to Rikers Island. It was a packed bus, standing room only, only thing. No one was allowed to stand. We were all seated, cuffed and chained. We started out in silence as the bus pulled into the busy New York streets. Most were looking around at each other, trying to get a read or a feel about who was the weakest, who was the strongest, who should be used, who should be joined, who should be avoided, and who should be feared. Me? I was playing the window seat, looking out and forbidding any eye contact. Strange. I'm sure 99% of us speak English, but it was the same as though we each spoke a different language. No one wanted to break the ice that was frozen solid, dividing and freezing each of us into a separate cube, even though we were traveling in the heat of summer, and even though we were all going to the same destination. Seven minutes in, One dude started rhyming. It was hip-hop, but it was the blues. All about how hard life was for him. The one seated next to him started to click his cuffs together to the beat. Then one behind him began beatboxing. Not everyone shared the same skill, but we were all black and young, and we could each catch the beat with our hands, cuffs, chains, feet, or mouths. It was the only time I saw more than two or three young black males do anything together besides ball, football, baseball, basketball, or soccer. The hardest of the hard tried to ignore the pull of the acapella music, but even those few were either toe-tapping or banging or stomping out to the beat. Dude in the middle made up a melody and started singing his own hook to our impromptu song somehow his deep voice was soothing the way it laid back and laced the rhythm of the rhyme when it was done it was done it was back to being frozen and hard hearted and deaf and disconnected the dude in front of me and the guy seated next to him were different though they broke the ice between them as we neared the island A few seconds of overhearing them, and I knew that they already knew one another. 
which was why they were no longer frozen like the rest. One was older than the other, schooling him on the island in a low tone. But there is no privacy in this circumstance, so I had to listen, even if I didn't want to hear. Miz, we about to arrive in hell, I know. This is my sixth time. You going to be a target because of what you got on, so let me get your chain. I'm going to hold it for you. You too new to rock it without getting sliced up. Niggas going to test you for your kicks on your feet and for the shirt and pants off your ass and back. But don't let them strip you no matter what. But if them niggas bum rush you four or five or six of them at a time, I'm going to tell you now, you going to lose. But fight them like you believe you can win. Hit them hard. Fight dirty. Bite a motherfucker if you have to, but show them you got heart. And that you're willing to go for broke. That's the only way you can get some respect. If you don't fight, they're going to be made tagging that ass. If you let them bitch you up like there's no turning back, word travels faster than fire on the inside. And everybody will want to turn to get at you. The younger one leaned forward. The older one tried to remove the gold chain from his neck. When we get to intake... Like when we first arrived, the CO's going to talk a lot of shit about not fighting, not getting into no more trouble than you already in. Don't listen to shit that a CO has to say. It's fight or die. I was in your same position on my first trip up here. I had to lay a few kids down. They gave me a 15-second hearing. Didn't hear a word I had to say about it. They threw my ass straight in the box. That shit was hell. 23 hours a day I was locked in for 90 days. Thought I was going to lose my mind. I started seeing shit, word up, hearing shit and talking to myself, banging my head on the walls and shit, crazy. You don't want to go to the box, but believe me, when I got out of there, niggas started to show me motherfucking respect. I looked around. A quick glance was all it took to survey the limited space in my box. There was a sink. I went to it, turning on the water, yet not expecting it to pour out. I wasn't expecting anything, in fact. The water rushed out. I rinsed, then cupped my hands and began splashing water onto my face. This isn't hell, I thought to myself. There is no sink or cool or cold water in hell. I know better. In the Quran, hell is described to us truthfully and clearly in great detail. Non-believers wear garments of fire and hot boiling water is poured over their heads, water so hot that what is in their bellies and even in their skins will all be melted. When those who have been dragged to hell on their faces try to escape, they are met by whips of iron and repeatedly pulled back in. They cannot rid themselves of the feel and taste of constant burning. There is a tree in hell known to Muslims as the tree of Zakum. It bears no fruit. The only food it offers is thorns and snake heads. What this captivity is for me is a trial, I told myself. In Surah 25, Ayat 29, the Quran says, We make some of you a trial for others. And in Surah 29, Ayat 2, we are asked the question, do men think that they will be left alone on saying we believe and will not be tried? In times of being tried, a true believer does not doubt or curse or abandon his faith. 
Allah can never be abandoned. We believe that Allah is closer to us than our main vein. However, Allah can abandon whom he pleases, leave us in error if he pleases. So we humble ourselves in fear and in love of Allah that we might never be abandoned by the one who created us, gave us breath and light. We pray even more in times of difficulty. We are never disloyal. Those who are disloyal in faith are untrue and were untrue from the start. The Quran says, And among men is he who serves Allah on the verge, so that if good befalls him, he is satisfied therewith. But if a trial afflicts him, he turns back. He loses this world and the hereafter. That is a manifest loss. Surah 22, Ayat 11 It was hot in the box. But I was used to handling the heat. This was nothing compared to the heat of the desert, I remembered. And this was not the heat of hell. I took a few deep breaths, doused my entire self with water, cleaned even the soles of my feet and made a prayer. Afterwards, I collapsed. My body was exhausted and my brain was on burnout. Sleep is a necessity, not a desire. I convinced myself it was the only way for me to give in and let go. Deep sleep. So deep there was no dreaming or memory of having dreamt. So deep there was no amount of cells slamming shut or men calling out that could rouse me. Deep in a blanket of darkness so dark there was no emotion in me, no desire to see, no fear of the unknown, no desires and no needs, not even yearnings, just sleep. This was the kind of sleep that could only be brought on by a week of interrogations and beatings, nearly two weeks of heavy suspicions and constant observing and several days of carrying chains on hands and feet, taking baby steps and small motions and of untangling lies that once untangled, if pulled and stretched out in a straight line, would run on for miles and miles and miles. Fully awake and alert, feeling grateful to have finally slept, this was the blessing of the box. Solitude. Still, there was a stench. Ignore it, I told myself. If I simply breathed in and out enough times, it would become like odorless oxygen. I smiled. But I was awake now, and the action in me was fully awake as well. One towel, that's what I had been given, and one cup and one toothbrush, and one bar of soap, and one roll of tissue. On the metal slab that was my bed, on top of a cracker-thin mattress, I sat. Using my teeth, I loosened the threads of the towel until I could pull them out with my fingers. I ripped the towel into three portions, and then each portion in half again until I had six washcloths. I began cleaning a thorough cleaning without detol or detergents, but using the bar of soap that I was issued. And I was scrubbing each thing, the sink, the toilet, the walls, and even the floors with a forceful hand and constant motion. Allah loves those 
who purify themselves, I remember. I was washing off the saliva and tears and breath and residues of hundreds, if not thousands, of men. The stench made their presence here in the box obvious. If I didn't clean up, it would be like I was locked in a small space with all of the men who had ever been locked in this same space. With the soap and the cloths and the detailed scrubbing, I was creating a new start and a neutral scent, which was better than a foul one. With washcloth number four, I scrubbed even the slot where thousands of hands before mine had been pushed in and out, cuffed and released. Eyes, a CO peering in, no privacy. I didn't expect any. I was being watched like a leopard in a cage. Feminine fingers, I could tell, even through the thin white gloves she wore. The dinner tray came. I didn't expect it didn't expect anything. It was pushed through the slot and I took it. Thank you, I said, through the cleaned slot. No response. Didn't expect one. Eating now is just a function. The food is not connected to any emotional bonds, culture, or tradition. I wouldn't savor it, anticipate it, or even taste it, yet I would eat to survive. After digestion was fully completed, I was weighing out my workout options. There was enough space for the usual dips and squats and thrusts and push-ups and sit-ups and so on. I didn't launch immediately into that formula. I was thinking and strategizing. My body was already cut and carved, solid and strong, flexible and fluid. Up against a wall of men, I realized that my most lethal weapon was my martial arts techniques. The Asian fighting arts were all about the art of the empty hands, hands without guns and sometimes without even poles or sticks or knives. And in learning those techniques, we are trained to fight more than one man at a time, sometimes five, 10 or 15, but there is a difference between men poised to engage in hand-to-hand and a mob like the riot that landed me in the box. The dilemma is that as a ninjutsu warrior, I am trained in the art of the kill. I can have an opponent that is a foot taller than me or half a foot wider than me like some of these dudes up in here. I can have a rival who is a wall of muscle. Still, I could kill him through the technique of attacking his pressure points joints or his eyes, or by simply and swiftly catching him at the right angle, punching his flesh inside of his body and snatching back his organs. We are not trained in the half kill. We are not defensive fighters. We are not martial arts exhibitionists or dancers. There is no cute choreography. We aim to eliminate swiftly and to not leave a trace. I did not come here, however, to kill. I came here to serve my time until I am sentenced and sent elsewhere to serve more time, hopefully an amount of time comparable to the valuelessness of the deceased. The trick question or the trick situation for me then is how can I serve my time without 
accumulating more time by eliminating enemies that simply appeared right in my face for no right reason when I get back into population after my 90 days in the box. Don't overthink it, I told myself. I'd opt to change out of my street clothes and into the department into the Department of Corrections issued top and bottoms. While alone, I'd shadow fight, sharpening my techniques and accuracy, movement and speed, kicks and leaps. While getting deep into the sparring, my peripheral vision was catching glimpses of eyes peering into my cell. Soon as I noticed this, I broke my momentum, not wanting to display my level to the officers for any reason or to anyone who might be collecting information for my still-open case. I'm not under any impression that I know what side anyone I come across is on. They're all strangers to me. Give them a few minutes, and something they say or do will reveal their hand. After my extended shadow fight with a swift and elusive opponent, I wound down into dips and thrusts and squats and sit-ups and push-ups. Then I lay down on the floor, looking up at the rule book I had been given for this place. It was the only book I had so far. Should I read it when I was already crystal clear that no one on Rikers Island was following any rules anyway? Not the inmates, or the keepers. I sat up and cracked it open. It was better for me to learn their official policy than not to learn it. This way, I would understand the consequences of each thing and how to possibly make moves in my own favor. An inmate shall obey all orders of Department of Correction officers, personnel and staff, at all times and without argument. Now I knew that thinking was forbidden. I also knew that speaking was forbidden unless it was the normal nonsense. Good time for good behavior can reduce an inmate's sentence by one third of the term. I paused right there. It sounded like a trick. Yet they were trying to give us the carrot to chase something to strive for in a place where in order to survive you would have to disobey at least a few rules and knock out at least a few men if not kill them outright so the one-third reduction was something available that couldn't actually be obtained some of the rules didn't match the nature of men no wrestling or what they called horseplay and no sparring that was crazy to me It actually meant that if we were fighting one another, it better be for real, and not because we are young men who are captives, rivals, or friends just doing what was normal for us to do. They labeled sparring and play fighting as assault, punishable by a trip to the box, a conversation between two or more locked-up dudes according to their rules could catch an inmate a conspiracy charge. It is considered forging an agreement to break the rules. So extreme. Even if an inmate gives another inmate something with the intent to influence the person or benefit himself, benefit himself in any way, it's labeled bribery. 
I paused, thinking how the rules were worded and set in such a way that any inmate could be accused of anything at any time and he would be guilty because what he was being accused of is normal everyday happenings. He would have no defense, although he would get a hearing. What a joke. At the hearing, once they charged the inmate with talking or gathering together in a small group or sharing a pack of ramen with the intent to influence another inmate to trade something he got, he would be found guilty. Even before reading their rule book, I knew this system was a trap, not a place to expect or receive justice. Not even if a man was honest and true about the unlawful actions he actually did commit. Not even if a man simply wanted to do what the facility was built for. Serve his time and nothing extra. As a businessman, I understood this hustle. Each inmate was a captive consumer. Out in the world, businessmen had to attract a customer by having an excellent product or a very accessible product or a very useful or popular, well-advertised product or a fairly priced, affordable necessity product. But in here, according to their rule book, everything an inmate buys must be purchased from the Department of Corrections Commissary. If an inmate buys or shares or trades anything, it is a violation that comes with a write-up and a punishment. It is illegal, and the thing that was purchased, shared, or traded, they labeled contraband. If an inmate got two Tylenols or bare aspirins and he gave one to his man who was sick, that's a violation. They wrote that in their rule book crazy. I learned that in here you could buy food. The food is only legal if it is purchased from commissary. The food could only be stored in our cell if it was purchased from commissary. That's a mean hustle, I thought to myself. There was only one supplier providing products, setting prices, and controlling and monopolizing the market, which was definitely not a free market with competition at all. There were other rules, of course, that were even stranger. Reading them typed out in a leaflet let me know what usually goes on in here. Rules like no demonstration, boycotts or work stoppages, or interrupting the routine in any way. Same as saying, we know we're robbing you and fucking you over, but just let it happen. They even stated that no inmate can resist any correction officer or DOC staff member. They put in parentheses the word physically, but they already had stated that it was also wrong to resist by talking back. Inmates shall not make threats or take hostages. Now I was laughing to myself. They made the rules so ridiculous and so tight that it must be an everyday reality in here that shit explodes into the riot that I saw or into inmates taking hostages. And the last and filthiest rule 
one that should never have to be spoken or written down is no sex between inmates or anyone at Rikers. No exposing your private parts or asking or paying for sex. An all-male facility, I thought to myself. Why would there be any mention of sex between men? And what of the feminine fingers I saw? Was the no-sex rule put in place to protect whatever few women who were unloved and unprotected and therefore desperate enough and allowed to work in here, surrounded and engulfed by filthy men, including the male officials and the inmates? The second part of that final rule, not to expose your private parts, was pure bullshit. I was part of a lineup of naked men after having been stripped of my clothes at Riker's intake. Some of the same dudes that rode up on the same bus with me, chained and cuffed together, were there too. Men who were already humiliated prisoners became visibly insecure, embarrassed, and vexed enough to curse the guards out loud. I didn't say shit. I'm not shy. That's a feminine trait. Moreover, I'm not shy standing before men who, although they are still in uniform, physically have the same as me. I wasn't going to let these authorities raise any emotion in me, fear or otherwise, I told myself. Instead, I pitied the corrections officers, thought about just how miserable and desperate a loser a man would have to be to take a job staring at other men's private parts and then asking them to bend over so you could take a look up their asshole. To take that job, a man would have to be a complete failure at business, which is the backbone of America. He'd have to be either too lazy or too dumb or too broken to have developed a product, opened a store, or dealt in trade, import or export. He would have to be a man whose father left him nothing. No land, no jewels, no gold, no cash. He'd have to be a man who had no other choice, was in debt everywhere, even to the mother of his children. So I was calm during the naked search. I felt, despite my present situation, that I was still above all of the men hired to do what they were doing right then. In my southern grandfather's village, there were times when men were naked and in groups. It could be while washing in the bathhouse or down at the water. It was no big deal. We would wash each other's backs. Men were solid. In our minds, there was nothing a man wanted from another man besides true brotherhood and sincere friendship. In that village, all men knew that we were bonded one to the other as the protectors of our women, our land, our animals, and our culture and beliefs. In the conclusion of their Rikers rule book, it was repeated in bold lettering that accused inmates have a right to an in-house jail hearing But who would believe in receiving justice at a hearing after reading the rules and therefore peeping both the hustle and the setup woven into the rules? I wouldn't. That was one of about three urgent reasons why, in my riot hearing, which occurred before I was transferred to the box, I said absolutely nothing. Silence suits me. Solitude is my preference and is also my premeditated plan.